I'm going to be reading Romans 4, and uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 16. We're going to read just two verses, Romans 4, verses 16 and 17. Here's what we read. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. If I were to ask you which one of the attributes of God has meant most to you in recent days, has been most precious to you in recent days, I wonder which attribute of God would would come to your mind. Maybe in recent days it's been God's love, or God's patience, God's righteousness, or God's power that has meant much to you. Well, part of what Paul is helping us to do here in Romans 4 is better see one very glorious attribute of God, namely, His wisdom. There were those in Paul's day and those in our day who think that salvation should work very differently than it does. In their minds, using their wisdom, salvation should require some form of obedience some form of adherence to law in order to merit the favor of God. Paul was trying to help us see that God's wisdom is higher than our own. He doesn't merely want us to see that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, though he does want us to see that. But he wants us to understand why it works that way. He wants us to understand why God ordained it to work this way. He wants us to come to the point, as we think about the gospel and the way of salvation, He wants us to come to the point where we stand in awe of the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's not merely giving us a more accurate view of salvation. And Paul is not merely giving us a more precise understanding of the gospel. He is also seeking to give us higher thoughts of our God. He wants us to be like Job. He wants us to come face to face with the awesome wisdom of the God who is and to come to a place where we put our hands on our mouths and stop with all of our objections to the gospel and God's way of salvation. In a sense, it's as if Paul was saying, let's have no more of this salvation must require circumcision or salvation must require works of the law mumbo jumbo. He says, God knows what he's doing. It was he who said that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. God knows what he's doing. See the wisdom of God, believe the gospel and rest. To help us see the wisdom of God, Paul is trying to explain to us then why God ordained salvation to work the way it does, by faith alone. Already this morning we saw why God was wise in 
ordaining salvation not to be by law-keeping. If adherence to the law were the requirement, Paul said this morning, faith would be null and the promise void. How can a holy God give glorious promises and blessings to an unholy people? How can God bless sinners when His holiness demands that He curse them? Well, the only way law-keeping would work is if we could somehow obey the law perfectly. Not only abstaining completely from every and all sin, but also in our hearts as well as our actions, doing every good deed necessary with perfect hearts of purity and love. Then and only then, if we were able to adhere to the law 100% through and through, from the moment we were born to the day we die, only then would our law-keeping make God just in blessing us. But there's none of us in this room who have lived that way or ever could live that way. Not with these crooked hearts of ours. Even if God caused a person to be born and from the moment of that person's first breath to live in perfect accordance with His law, even then all the credit for that person's law-keeping would be owing to God's grace. Because that person is a son of Adam and inherited the curse of Adam, and inherited the guilt of Adam. And the question would rise again, what right did God have to be so gracious to this guilty person? And there would be no answer. In other words, there is no possible scenario, real or hypothetical, in which law-keeping could bring to sinful human beings the promises of God. God was wise in ordaining salvation not to be by law-keeping. But so far, we've only seen half of Paul's argument. We've only seen half of the wisdom of God in this matter. Paul has helped us to see why salvation cannot depend on law-keeping, but now he's going to help us see why it depends on faith. We've already seen one reason, right? That's why verse 16 begins. That is why it depends on faith, right? Because law-keeping won't work. Because law-keeping won't bring the promises to fruition. Law-keeping will not allow God to be God and bless sinners. Law won't work. That is why, verse 16, it depends on faith. But then it goes on to tell us more about why it depends on faith. He gives us two answers. The question is this. Why did God make salvation depend upon faith? Here are two answers or really better, two parts of the one answer that Paul gives to us. Number one, God made salvation depend on faith that it might rest on grace. That the promise may rest on grace. You see that in verse 16? That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise, that is all of the blessings of God, may rest on grace. We're talking about the promise given to Abraham that he would be a father of many nations. But we're also talking about all of the promises of God that he has made to his people. 
We're talking about the promise of salvation. We're talking about God's promise to you and to me that if you believe on my son, you shall be saved. And that will include a new heavens and a new earth and perfection. And, and Romans 8.28, everything that happens in this life will work for your good. And my son will never leave you and will never forsake you. And all of these promises of God that he has made to us have been made to depend on faith. Why? So that they will rest on grace. Since faith is a gift from God to people who cannot believe on their own, who will not believe on their own, who do not deserve to believe on their own, faith makes salvation all of grace. Why does God want salvation to be all of grace? You know the answer. So that all of the glory will belong to Him. Remember, everything that God does, He does out of His infinite delight in Himself. Everything that God does is motivated by a desire to give expression to His perfect and glorious attributes. By making salvation all of grace, God is able to display, to act out before Himself, before the angels in heaven, before all whom He gives eyes to see, the wonders of His mercy and His love and His kindness. God glorifies Himself by making salvation depend on faith so that it will depend and rest on grace. Many of you know that the Reformers the days of the Reformation, they were marked by their convictions concerning what are, what are called the five solas. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. There is no authority on this earth equal to or greater than that of the Scriptures. Sola Christos. Christ alone. There is no other Messiah. There is no other Savior. There is no other Lord of Lords or way of salvation. Sola fide, faith alone. Here is what has permeated Romans 3 and 4. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ, apart from works, apart from rituals. Sola gratia, grace alone. Since salvation is all of faith, it is all of grace It is God alone who causes anyone to believe. It is God who gives the gift of faith. None of us deserve this. When salvation is by faith, it rests on grace. Does anybody remember what the last sola is? Sola Deo Gloria. To God be glory alone. To God be all the glory. Here is the reason for the other four. Why is Scripture the supreme authority in our world? Why is Christ the one and only way of salvation? Why is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone? Answer, ultimately, the reason for all of this is that God would be glorified and that He would receive all the glory. There is no part of your salvation that is not owing to God's grace. That special moment when the effectual call of God affected your heart so that you felt in your soul that Christ was calling you to come to Him, to rest in Him. That call was grace. Paul says in Galatians 1.15, he, he speaks of the God who called me by His grace. 
It was grace that caused you to be born again, that gave you a new heart that, that loves God rather than rejects God. Titus 3.5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It was God's grace that gave you faith. You know the passage, Ephesians 2.8? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is God's grace that sanctifies you and sustains your faith. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Or 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded or kept through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You are being kept in the love of God. You are being kept saved for heaven. How? Through faith by God's power. If you believe the Word of God this moment, it is the power of God at work in your life. To Him be the glory. To us be humility and gratitude. Wherever you look in the Scriptures, they ascribe every possible aspect of our salvation to the grace of God. Thus, salvation was ordained by God to rest on faith that it might be by grace. That's part one of the answer. Part two is this. Not only that the promise would rest on grace, but so that the promise would be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. You see that in verse 16? Verse 16 of Romans 4. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. You see, salvation had to be by grace through faith in order for God to ensure that all those whom he had chosen to be, God, to be Abraham's offspring, that they would actually receive the promises. Paul does not have in mind here the, the physical offspring of Abraham. He's thinking of the true offspring of Abraham. He's thinking of those who, like Abraham, received the promises through the righteousness of faith. The offspring of Abraham are the elect of God. It is those whose names have been written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. Some are rich, some are poor. Some are highly educated, some are unlearned. There are men and women and boys and girls. They're from every race. They're from every ethnicity. These are the people who were ransomed by the blood of Jesus. These are the ones whom God and His sovereign grace has set His special love upon. Before the beginning of time and the councils of heaven, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they determined that these people would be saved, that they would receive undeservedly the fullness of God's blessing, and they determined that these people would be the offspring of Abraham. Some will be Jews. 
Some will be adherents to the law. Others will not be Jews. Others will not be under the Mosaic law. But Jew and Gentile, all of Abraham's offspring, will be saved and will be saved by faith. Verse 17, I'm sorry, the end of verse 16. Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Abraham has been made the spiritual father of all who believe, all who follow his pattern of being counted righteous by faith. We talked about it this morning. What did John the Baptist say to the Pharisees? Do not presume to yourself to say, well, we have Abraham as our father right? by blood. Right? He says, don't say that. God can make from these stones offspring for Abraham. And that's exactly what God does, isn't it? He takes people with stony hearts <laughs> and He turns them into offspring of Abraham. God's purpose of saving His people would never have been accomplished had salvation been left up to us. If salvation had been left up to us, to law-keeping, to us meriting God's favor, how many of God's elect, how many of Abraham's offspring would have seen heaven? Zilch. Not a zero. The only way that God guarantees that every person whom He's determined to see heaven actually sees heaven is if 100% of the work of salvation is in His hands. And that's salvation by grace through faith. Since it all lies in His hands, and since He has mighty, mighty hands, there has never been a millisecond in the history of the world when the salvation of His people was in doubt. God could tell Abraham thousands of years ago, Abraham, you are the father of a multitude. I'm changing your name. It's who you are right now. They don't exist yet. You don't see them yet, Abraham. But you know what? The future is so certain. It is so guaranteed that I am already calling you father of a multitude. It was settled. It was certain. It was guaranteed. Now, In the middle of verse 16, Paul stopped mid-sentence to remind us who the offspring of Abraham are. They are both Jews and Gentiles. They are those of faith who adhere to the Old Testament law and those of faith who do not. And he proved this by quoting Genesis 17.5. I've made you the father of many nations. You see that quote? He quotes that to prove his point. And the important point there is that the word nations is plural, right? In other words, Abraham's offspring is not a nation. Abraham's offspring is nations. It's multiple, it's plural. And therefore he says to Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, Abraham's the father of us all. But now, for the second half of verse 17, Paul finishes his sentence. He tells us more about this great God in whom Abraham believed. In fact, in the second half of verse 17, we see two truths about Abraham's God. Two truths that Abraham believed about God. Truths that we who are Abraham's offspring should also believe concerning God. These are very good truths, very glorious truths. The first we see is that our God is a God who gives life to the dead. 
Our God is a God who gives life to the dead. The God in whom Abraham believed was a God of resurrection. Do you remember a moment in Abraham's life in which his belief that God could resurrect the dead was particularly important and was particularly powerful? Do you remember when God came to Abraham and said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you? When Abraham first heard these words, they must have struck him like a cannonball in the stomach. Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was the son born of a miracle. The child of a man and a woman who were far beyond childbearing age. God had specifically told Abraham that it would be through this son, through Isaac, that all of the glorious promises that he had heard would be fulfilled. It wasn't that Isaac was the coming one, the Genesis 3.15 serpent slayer, but from Isaac the Messiah would come. From Isaac the rest of the promises would be fulfilled. And then God comes to Abraham and says, Now, sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. How did Abraham respond? He obeyed God. Abraham responded by obeying God. It wasn't blind obedience, it was obedience rooted in faith. Abraham knew what God had said about Isaac, and Abraham had learned the hard way. Through many goof-ups and through many wicked sins, Abraham had learned from experience that when God says something, it can be trusted. So if God says, Isaac must die, and through Isaac your offspring will, be, will come, through Isaac your offspring will be named, well then, he's going to believe both. He knew that what God's Word said about Isaac would come true. Genesis 22, verse 5, Abraham tells his servants, You guys stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. In other words, it appears that Abraham truly believed that though he was going to sacrifice his son as God had commanded, in order for God's words to come true, God was going to rise Isaac right back up from the dead. The writer to the Hebrews sums this up in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Speaking about Abraham's faith, the Hebrew writer says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen carefully. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, Abraham believed in a resurrecting God. This was the God he trusted, and it was by trusting this kind of God that his faith was counted as righteousness. I think the question to ask at this point to us is this. Is this the God in whom you believe? Are you trusting in an all-powerful God who does the impossible? He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My purpose shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Is that the God in whom you trust? His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? This is the all-powerful God who can work the impossible. Is this the God in whom you believe? You should believe it. God preaches His resurrection power to us in so many ways. Winter turns into spring. Caterpillars enter a a silky tomb and come out a living butterfly. The sun goes away each evening and darkness comes. But guess what happens in the morning? It comes back and light returns. The heavens declare the glory of God. And one of the glories of God that the heavens are declaring every day is the resurrecting power of God. In fact, every day you experience a picture of this yourself when you lay down to sleep at night and go to bed. In a sense, for a few hours you... Leave this world. You cease to exist as a living being. For a few hours every day, your consciousness leaves the land of the living. And and yet, it's happened to you tens and thousands of times already. You wake up. You get back up off the bed. You're, You're alive again. You get back into life. You keep on rolling. In all of these ways, general revelation, what creation is teaching, is pressing on to us what we know to be true from special revelation. Dead people can live again. Our God is one who raises people from the dead, both spiritually and physically. Listen to the words of Jesus from John 5. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Dead people don't hear. What's Jesus thinking? Dead people hear. That's what he said. Dead people, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Church, the God in whom we believe is a God who has already raised us from the dead spiritually. And He's a God who has given us new life. We have resurrected souls. And though our bodies will one day be put in a box and stuck in the ground, there is coming a day when God will raise them up again too. And our resurrected souls and our resurrected bodies will be joined together and we will dwell with God forever in heaven. This is the God of Abraham. 
a God of resurrection. This is the God in whom we must have faith if we are to be saved. This is a God who is worthy of your faith, a God who will not fail you. Let me point out real quickly that there may be something of a double reference here. That is, when I read in verse 17 of life from the dead, and I think of Abraham, I immediately think of the sacrifice of Isaac. I think of resurrection. But Paul may also have in mind something that happened before in Abraham's life, namely the birth of Isaac. Because look down at verse 19. We'll look at verse 19 next week, but just look at it real quickly. He, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as what? Dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. In other words, Abraham had already experienced God's miraculous power of bringing life from deadness before he ever got to the sacrifice of Isaac. Because Abraham had witnessed God bring life from his and Sarah's bodies, though they themselves were so elderly that their bodies, at least reproductively, were dead. The God of Abraham was a God who brings life from deadness. So that's the first thing we see about the God in whom Abraham believed. The second thing we see in verse 17 is that Abraham's God is one who calls things into existence that do not exist. You see that? Verse 17. In the presence of whom, of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is what theologians call creation ex nihilo. That is, creation out of nothing. This is what God did at the creation of the world. He caused nothing to become something. You and I can create out of something. We can take mediums like rock or clay or many other things and we can make something from them. But God takes nothing and makes something. This is one way to know that you're not God, by the way. (laughs) Just try this. If you ever begin to have high thoughts of yourself and to think that you're God, try creation ex nihilo. You'll see pretty quickly. You are not God. I think what Paul is especially thinking about here is that moment in Abraham's life, Genesis 17, when God changed Abram's name to Abraham. When God called Abraham the father of a multitude, though at that moment... The first of that multitude had not even been born, right? It wasn't, like, it wasn't like it was just beginning. Isaac wasn't even born yet when God called Abraham the father of a multitude. And the idea is that the multitude did not yet exist. This was a God who could make them out of nothing. There was no obstacle that would keep God from creating them. God's promise was sure. This is why God took, this is why Abraham took God at his word. Not only is God a faithful God who keeps his word, but he is a God who can create out of nothing. You see, if God is truly trustworthy, there must be two requirements that he meets. One, our God must be a person of his word, he must be faithful, he must truly intend to keep the promises he makes. But second, He must also be a person of ability. For a person who makes promises fully intending to keep them and desiring to keep them 
may find himself unable to keep them. And then the promises still do not come. I was thinking this week just with the news and everything about Social Security, for example. We're hearing a lot about Social Security in these days. And in Social Security, our government makes a promise to us that though we have an added tax on our paychecks for Social Security, these monies will one day be returned to us as the government takes care for us in the later years of our lives. So we have several folks in our church who who receive Social Security, and it's, it's a huge help to them. But will this promise of Social Security, will that hold true when our children and our grandchildren are elderly? Will those monies be there? Will the government be able to take care of them? And I'm not even touching the discussion of should the government be doing this. I'm just dealing with the promise, okay? Well, that depends on two things. Number one, will our government remain sincere in wanting to keep the promise? But two, will our government be able to keep the promise? See, what if the money isn't there? It doesn't matter how sincere our leaders are if the money isn't there. Well, similarly, it doesn't matter how much God loves us. It doesn't matter how much God wants to bless us. It doesn't matter how sincere He is in His intent to save our souls if He's not able to do so. What if Satan is too strong and hinders God from keeping His promises? What if there are unforeseen circumstances that surprise God and, and spin circumstances out of His control? As you and I are condemned to hell, what will we say? God, don't cry. We know you did your best. By the way, if anybody says that and means it, that's blasphemy to speak that way about God. What Paul is teaching us here is that God's tremendous love for us is supported by His omnipotence. He is all-powerful. Abraham believed in a God who he not only believed was going to keep his word sincerely, but who had the power to do so no matter how bad the circumstances looked. A barren wife, a 99-year-old body, right? Circumstances don't look good for becoming the father of a multitude of nations. God, I know you mean well. Can't Ishmael live before you? Take Ishmael, work with him. God can do the impossible. There are no unforeseen circumstances. God is omniscient and He knows all things. He is in complete control. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Ephesians 1.11 He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Hear that? All things. There's not one sparrow that falls to the ground apart from our Father's will. The Heidelberg Catechism says, God upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. There are no unforeseen circumstances because God is in complete and absolute Control. There is nothing he cannot do to fulfill his word. I would close by reminding you that it is one thing to say that we believe in such a God, it's another thing to truly believe in such a God. Abraham, by grace, had a measure 
of faith in this kind of God. But in those early years, after Abraham had been called, he showed again and again his failure. He showed again and again how easy it is to lose sight of the God in whom he believed. It was only through experiences, often bitter experiences, sometimes joyful experiences, but it was through experiences that Abraham learned to truly believe in such a God. The Abraham of Genesis 22 is not the same Abraham of Genesis 12. The kind of faith that Paul is is going to talk about in the next verses next week is not the kind that Abraham had in its fullness when he first believed. Rather, just like you and me, Abraham's faith started small and it was strengthened over time by means of grace. And that's how it is for us too. I pray that all of us believe in the big, incredible God I've been describing. But we need to stay very close to the means of grace so that our faith in such a God will be daily strengthened and increased. Time after time, As we live the Christian life, God's faithfulness will be taught to us anew. And He who first gave us faith will sustain it and build it and grow it through our experiences. So here's the wisdom of God. He can remain holy. He can remain the glorious God that He is. And we can have the glorious promises despite our sin because of His plan of salvation through faith in Jesus. Jesus is the key to all of this. Jesus is the linchpin on which all of God's saving plan depends. Jesus is the one on whom we must believe. It is He who brings to us the promises of God. In Jesus Christ, all of God's promises to us are yes and amen. And so, what's the main application? The same thing it's been since we began unpacking the gospel back in in Romans 3. It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe. Believe every day. Believe. Do everything you can to strengthen your faith by being in the means of grace. Believe. Believe. See Jesus Christ and rest in Him.